Okay, good morning, everybody. You ready? Uh, let's have a chat. And uh, we're in this series in 1 Peter, and we know that the whole kind of approach that Peter's taking is he's talking to believers that are living in a very hostile world, and he's preparing them, kind of preparing their, their hearts to uh, make a difference, right? I mean, that's kind of what we've been looking at is like, how do we live in a modern world? How do we live in a modern culture? And Peter has identified the fact that we are aliens, strangers, foreigners, but yet we belong. We're different, but we belong where we are. And we have been born again with a new living hope, and we are to set an example, right? That we've, we've learned all these. We've been going through this for several weeks. If you if you're brand new with us, uh, we've gone through this entire series. Now we're in chapter 3. And Peter comes to a kind of a crescendo of all that he's been saying about preparing the believer to live in this modern world. He's, he's identifying the fact that, that we live within culture, we live within this modern world, for a purpose, and that purpose is that we might be able to represent the gospel through our lives and be able to, to be able to articulate to others why we believe what we believe. Has, has anyone ever sat you down, noticed that you're different because you're a Christian, and asked you the question, why do you, why do you believe that, or what do you believe? It may be antagonistically, or it may just be sincerely. They've asked you, why do you believe what you believe? Have you ever had that kind of conversation? Yeah, we've, some of you have, right? You've had the opportunity with a friend, with a coworker, with a sibling, with a, a parent, or someone in your life has come to you and asked you the question, why do you believe what you believe? Peter wants us to be prepared for that moment. And that's where he goes in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. In fact, in 1 Peter Chapter 3, verse 15, he says this very thing. But sanctify Christ as Lord over or in your hearts, always being ready, it says, to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account of, for the hope that lies within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So Peter says, be ready, because there's going to come a time and there's going to come a place when someone's going to ask you the question, why do you believe what you believe? I feel like I've been defending the gospel for most of my life. And we're going to talk about what this word defend means. It doesn't mean to be defensive. And it doesn't mean to be offensive. It means to literally have an answer for the hope that lies within you, yet with gentleness and reverence, giving it to someone who asks you in a sincere relationship on the basis of the kind of life that you live. And so we're going to look at this. Um, but I feel like most of my life I've been defending my, my faith. Um, high school, college, commercial real estate, among friends, acquaintances, social gatherings, kids' sporting events, vacations. For over 20 years, I feel like I've stood by a conviction that I now have even a more clear understanding of. 50 years ago, I put my faith and trust in Christ, and I feel as though... Like what John 20, 29 says. Jesus says, you believe because you've seen me. He's talking to his disciples. But blessed are those who believe without seeing. And I feel like that's our culture. That is, 
we are the people that have followed the early disciples that haven't had the chance. I've never seen God. I've never seen Jesus. You haven't either. But I know that God is real. And I would bet my life on it. In fact, I would go to the mat for it. And I have. I've been ridiculed. I've been questioned. I've been challenged. I've even been opposed for my faith in Christ. I remember a time, married, three kids, living in the suburbs of Chicago. I remember a time when I had it out with God. I was angry at God. It was in a, like a full-blown depression or something that happened in my life. And it was really a tough time. And I remember writing in my journal, I think I've come to a place where I just don't want to believe in you anymore, God. And I honestly wrote those words. And then the next words I wrote, but I know it's not, I, I know I can't actually sustain this. I know I can't actually believe that you don't exist because you do and I know you do. Because I've come to a realization in my life. What is real is real, whether we believe it or not. And Peter wants us to have that level of conviction about what we believe. But he wants us to understand the context that it's not something that we do argumentatively. It's what we, it's, it's, an, it's, it's an answer that comes through our lives. Because somebody sees the difference in the way we're living. Be ready to make a defense. I, I love that in Romans 1, when Paul lays out the gospel in Romans, the whole story of the gospel is a story of humankind in chapter 1, suppressing the truth about God. In fact, it even says the people in the world suppress the truth of God. And then he says, for since creation, God's invisible attributes have clearly been seen, been understood through what has been made, so that they, that is those that have suppressed the truth, are without excuse. God, Paul says that everybody really does know that there is a God. Whether you want to believe it or not, whether you call yourself an atheist, an agnostic, a deist, or something else, or a religious person, but you just don't believe in the Christian God, Every single person in the world has evidenced the reality that, that God shines his glory through creation. That's what Paul says in Romans. It's evident. You can see it. It's all around us. And yet, a lot of people don't believe it. And it's the challenge of the church to be individuals that live their life in such a way that we become the radiant glory of Christ, and we, we resemble Christ in such a way that our lives display evidence that there's something out there beyond ourselves, and they're going to want to know. And that's what Peter's making the argument here. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart, always being ready to make a defense of the gospel, even when they ask you, yet do it with reverence and gentleness. So let's look at this idea. I've had so many people say to me things like, Jesus is a myth. It's all made up. The Gospels aren't actual accounts. God doesn't exist, though most people really do believe that there's a God. They're, what they're really saying is that God's not knowable and he has no relevance in their lives. That's what a lot of people say. It's just kind of my observations. But the one thing that I have come to realize is that these statements are all smoke screens for the real truth. Most people know there's a God, there's a creator, they just don't want to believe. And the implication of all this is exactly what Peter's point is. 
God has made us to be beacons of light to a world trapped in darkness. And so in the context of Roman, or of 1 Peter chapter 3, starting back in verse 3, he says, to sum up, I want you to live harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly kinded, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for evil, but giving a blessed instead kinds of lives. Those are the kinds of people we are to be. In fact, if you go back to chapter 2, we've already looked at this and said and realized the fact that keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Why? So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, which is quite interesting, right? They, you're doing something good and it looks really bad. How is that possible? It's amazing how people can turn that. Like you're a narrow-minded person. You're a bad person. You're an evil person. You're a horrible person. You're a racist or whatever. And yet you are a person with good example, being a good example by living the life of Christ, loving people, honoring people, living above circumstances, whatever it is, and yet they're slandering you. It says, be excellent among them so that the thing in which they slander you, they may, that may, they, they, that they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of, 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 uh, revel of visitation. In other words, something's going to happen. Something's going to switch. Something's going to change in them because of the way you're living in your life and the explanation that you give them. That's what Peter's saying in this passage. The key idea is Peter's suggesting that the, the way in which we live our lives will cause others to be curious of our faith and our belief in Christ. In other words, we are to be the best explanation of the gospel someone has ever heard. Peter's not suggesting that we get into an argument. He's not saying that, there, but, but he is saying that there will be a time and a place to explain yourself, to stand for what you believe. I don't know why I take this as a challenge and a great privilege, but I do. Maybe because I've always been comfortable standing regardless of the consequence of the circumstance, standing out. And I think that's Peter's idea of being holy. When you go back into 1 Peter, he says, be holy for God is holy. He's, saying, don't, he's not saying be perfect. He's saying stand apart, be different, live your life differently. And if we focus on that, how to live our lives differently, out of that comes our best explanation of why it is we believe we believe. So I think Peter's point is that Christian, know who you are, and more than know, live who you are. And when you live into that, the more radiant Christ will shine through your life and show evidence in his eternal reality. And how does he do it? Three things, and here they are. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he first of all says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, then be ready to make a defense, yet do that with gentleness and reverence. Three things, sanctify, be ready, and be reverent. And I think in doing those three things, you will be the answer to the question people are asking. And so let's look at those. Number one is to be, uh, to, to sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Why does Peter say sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart? Why doesn't he say just be sanctified? Because the word sanctification, sanctified comes from holy, to be set apart. Sanctification is the process of being set apart of taking on the moral purity and the moral values of Christ as a process. That's what sanctification is. When we come to Christ, when you put your faith and hope in Christ, you are now in a process 
of moral purification, a transformation of moral values, living the life of Christ, and you're slowly changing, handing over your life, becoming more and more separate, more and more holy, more and more morally pure, holding to a higher standard of values, okay? That's what sanctification is. What Peter does is to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And when he does that, he's taking the idea of separation and he's saying, I want you to be different because what you do is you have taken Christ and you've put him center in your life. And that's why you're different than everybody else. It's because the center of your life and the center of your heart is influenced by Christ and not by other things. So the heart is this very, very tender part of us. It's, it's part of our being where Proverbs says, I think it's in chapter 4, it says, out of the heart flow all the issues of life. Everything you're about, everything you do, who you are flows out of your heart. That's why we're to protect the heart because what comes into the heart impacts who we are becoming and then it comes out as a behavior, as an action, as a response, at whatever it is. So we're influenced by things. Our hearts are influenced by things. And what Peter is saying, let Christ influence your heart more than anything else. That's what he's saying when he says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Make it holy, set it apart, Put Christ in that place. Sanctify as Lord of your hearts, making Christ primary folks of your heart, your heart's desires. Well, how do we do that? Well, Peter actually quotes Psalm 34, which is kind of like, why did he quote Psalm 34? Well, I actually went to Psalm 34, and I looked at it, and the verse right before the one that he quotes about not, not participating in evil, but um, the, the one who has desires in length of days, let him... Let him turn to the Lord and seek the Lord. But before that, it says in verse 8 of chapter 34, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the person who takes refuge in God. The idea of taste, desiring. See, you, you, can, you can actually build a taste for something. And, you, and your body responds, and then you like it more and more. So, Let's say you don't like something. Well, if you try it over and over again, you can build a taste for it. And, and, and we do find things in this world that we have a taste for that we naturally just like. We like exercise. Well, it's hard, but I know that once I exercise, I feel much better. And so I do it, and I've built up this taste, this desire for something. Um, I have one of our grandkids has unique palate, and I like that because I have a unique palate. And he likes raw fish, he likes dates and prunes and dried fruit and all sorts of interesting things that other people may not like, and especially at his age. And yet he has built a taste for that and, and, and loves that and desires that. And that's kind of a picture of what Peter's talking about is we've got to build this taste for Christ in our lives, which is we want him to influence our heart more than anything else. It's going to start with a desire. And the more we desire him to influence our lives, the more he does. And you've got to ask the question, 
what are the ways in which I build a greater taste for Christ in my life? I mean, what are the things that I can be doing? What can you be doing that will build that greater taste? What be some of those things? Think about that. Because Peter begins his argument with that, and then he moves into this idea after we have created a taste for Christ and it begins to influence our hearts, what he's inferring is our lives are going to be really interesting. They're going to reflect the life of Christ by the way in which we live. Our priorities change. When your heart is, is influenced by Christ, guess what? You're not thinking of yourself anymore. You're thinking primarily about how do I help others? How do I assist? How, what are ways in which we now, because our hearts have been influenced by Christ, how can we enter into other people's pain? How can we help them? How can we care for them? How can we come alongside? And you're going to all of a sudden discover that your priority in life is to help other people, to be a kind-hearted person, to be harmonious, loving, and you're going to be sacrificial with your, with your time and your money, and all of a sudden things begin to change, and guess what's going to happen next? People are going to notice. They're going to see that difference. And then it says, be ready to make a defense for everyone who asks you. Notice that. People are going to ask you, why do you believe what you believe? So the word defend literally means, the word is apologia in the Greek, which means to make kind of almost an argument. Uh, it's a judicial interrogation. It'd be like being at a sanitarial hearing and being asked, we, we, we'd like to have some answers from you about why you, do what you, why you did what you did or why you believe what you believe. It's an interrogation in the context of a relationship. And so Peter takes this rather harsh word and softens it because he puts it in the context of this gentleness and reverence and this relationship that we have with people that would come to us one at a time potentially and ask us a question, why do we believe what we believe? People are asking us why. You aren't telling them why, but they're asking why. Because you've sanctified Christ as Lord in your hearts, they're coming to you and asking the question, why do you believe what you believe? And now what do you do? It's not coercion. It's not an argument. It's an explanation for why you believe you, the way you are or the way you live. But here's the, here's the clincher. And here's the, here's, the, here's the little spur. And here's the challenge. If you live your life no different than anyone else, no one will notice Christ in your life. And the chances are no one will ask you. And that's hard to hear. And that's the challenge for us. And that's why it's so important that we are focused on a process of bringing about radical change in our life. Not only for our sake and not only for the fact that we get a lot of joy of being more and more like Christ, but because we become this radiant glory of Christ in the world through our lives. And so now we're ready to make this defense. And, and, and what I want to do just briefly with you is, is talk about this idea of being ready. Because Peter's saying, he's not saying, go around and make a defense. 
I want you to go, like, and I, and I love this one guy, Cliff Connectly. This is what he used to do. He'd go on the college campuses, and the way he did I really love the way he did it. Have anybody ever heard of Cliff Connectly? 20, 30 years, well, it's been 30 years. He would go around college campuses, big, tall guy, long arms, and he would go on the college campus, and he would gather a group of students. And this would happen all over college campuses. And I don't know whether it still does or not, but he'd come on to campus, and he would invite students to ask him a question about, about Christianity. And instead of being argumentative, instead of ripping them apart, he would look at them directly at the student that asked the question and say, that's a great question. Thank you for that question. And he would get in this, like, stance. Like, he'd get one foot in front of the other. I watched him on the Berkeley campus. He would do this. It was, it was awesome to watch him in action. But he'd go all over the country doing this. And he wrote a book called um, uh, Give Me an Answer. Really good book. You should buy it. Very small book. And, he had, and what he does is he condenses all the questions that he's heard college students ask him over all the years with very, very simple little answers. And it's really helpful. So that's a great question. Three things. And he would be super dynamic. And he would engage the student. And it's remarkable the response that he would get. That students would engage with him. They would, they would connect with him because he was respectful. He was honoring. And he was kind he wasn't defensive, but he was giving them a clear answer. Be ready. See, he didn't just show up one day and just walk on a college campus and go, well, let me, th let me think about that. He thought about the questions he was going to get. And let me give you, you, we all know the top four questions people ask about the faith, don't we? We know them already. I'll give them to you. And I, I'm, sure, I'm certain you, go, you will agree with me and go, that's absolutely true. Here, here's another question number one. If God exists, why can't we see him? People ask that question all the time, don't they? If God, if God really exists, well, show him to me. Therefore, I don't believe in him. It was Carl Sagan, the famous astronomer. Carl Sagan was, was an atheist. And he, um, he's the one who said that all there is is what we can see. That's it. We, we've got this covering. It's like we're within this universe, and, and there's nothing out there. There's nothing else. The problem is he didn't read Immanuel Kant, because if you read Immanuel Kant, the great philosopher from Scotland, beyond reason, what did he say? I mean, here's a non-Christian, uh, brilliant, probably one of the greatest philosophers of Western, Western thought indicates that, and here it is, that we can see and understand what it is that we can empirically experience through this, the five senses, the four senses, right? So we have these senses, taste and see and hear and all that. And, and we can kind of see and experiment, experience what it is that we, that, that's it, right? But what Immanuel Kant said was there's an external reality beyond our senses that we can't explain. One of the most brilliant philosophers indicated there's something beyond, but Carl Sagan basically said there's nothing else. And he's the one who came up with this idea that if God were real, he would write the Ten Commandments across the face of the moon for all to see. I mean, wouldn't that be brilliant? If God had just simply wrote the Ten Commandments on the moon every night, everybody in the entire world would go outside and go, my goodness, how in the world did that get there? There must be a God. The reason why God didn't do that is because that would be coercion. Because he would force 
everybody to believe. And God doesn't want to force you to believe. He wants you to seek him. He wants you to know that he exists and he has hinted at his existence through all of creation. I'm studying music right now and um, I'm studying the theory of music. And, uh, and I'm like, no, I just want to learn. I just want to get better at playing the trumpet. I don't want to know theory of music. And my teacher is telling me, no, you need to understand the, the theory of music. It's the circle of fifths. And I'm like, oh, no, this is gnarly. This is so complicated, the circle of fifths. But the fascinating thing with the circle of fifths is that you can start with any note and you know the next four notes. You can mathematically determine them based upon a theory of music. Where did this come from? Did someone invent this? It exists. It works. Where in the world did that come from? It's like, did it just happen? Did someone create that? It, the reason why we understand har- the, 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 the value of music is because it all comes together. It sounds right to us. And when you have a note that's off, you know it, don't you? You know when the note's off. Um, it's just a little hint of the existence of God. I'm going way too deep here. But the, the whole point is, is that the reason why God doesn't do that because it would force belief. He wants us to seek him, not be forced by coercion. It's like this. You don't force your girlfriend to marry you. Here I am. I'm the right one for you. Marry me. You don't do that, right? But what you do is you live your life in an attractive way so that she wants to be married to you out of free will because we're relational beings and God is relational. Number two. Did Jesus really exist and die on a cross for all humanity? I mean, seriously? Why is there so little evidence of his existence and death and resurrection in extra-biblical material? Why do you always go to the Gospels, and the, the four Gospels, and they're slanted towards Christ, and there's really nothing else? Well, I would point out the fact that there are several references of Christ outside of the biblical references because of his existence. Not a lot, but there are references of Christ. And you have to ask yourself the question, why is that true? Why is there historical evidence for Christ that goes beyond the slanted Gospels? Um, anybody read um, James Mishner, The Source? It's like a massive, massive story of the Hebrew people. And it takes, takes you through, in a novel form, the entire history of the, of the nation of Israel. James Mishner was the one who said that the history of Israel is the most, the, the Jewish people are, is the most, most historical, most historical reference in all the world. That this is so historically accurate. Um, you've got to be challenged by some of these things. The Bible, well, the Bible's not accurate. The Bible's a myth. The Bible is written by slanted, people slanted toward a particular view. You have to ask the question. Here's one. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Christ. If I were to write the story of the resurrection, I would want to write it in such a way to convince you to believe it, right? I mean, if, if, if I'm going to try to convince you of something, I'm going to write it in such a way that it is so good, you have to believe it. And when you read the gospel accounts of the resurrection, 
That's not the way it's written. It's, it's written in such a way that it's not believable. Because they didn't have anything to prove. They were simply explaining what they actually saw. In fact, you have women at the tomb first giving evidence in a society where their voice was not as great as that of a man. Giving evidence for the most important reality in all of history. Why? Because they didn't have anything to prove. They were simply telling the story of what really happened. I mean, I could go on and on, but those are some of the ideas. Prophecy, all sorts of things. Number three, is God real? If God is real, why does he allow pain and suffering, right? We're going to come down to it at one point or another. Why does God allow, why doesn't he just eliminate all pain and suffering? And people have all different answers for that. God could just simply wipe it all out. Or he could take away all the evil people. Here's the answer. Very simply, we live in a broken world. God didn't break it. He made it perfect. We're the ones that broke it. I mean, we have to be honest about that. God did not create an imperfect world. He created a perfect world with a perfect system with all these inexorable laws of nature that exist, things that that we know are true, physics, quantum physics, general relativity, ways in which things move throughout the world, all sorts of things that we rely upon to understand the world. God, something created all that, and then it fell. And pain and suffering are a result of the fallenness of humankind, and it is spread into the world. And here's another interesting little fact. A lot of religions try to answer the problem with suffering. If you look at Christianity, I think it answers it the best. Why? Because God participates in human suffering by sending his own son. Dorothy Sayers said that, that one of the greatest explanations for God is the fact that he participated in the very suffering that we experience. He really did understand our suffering. He sent Christ. Third, fourth, aren't all religions the same? I mean, come on. It's one mountain, different ways up. How can you say yours is better than mine? And really, the ultimate on that one is, I have my own religion, and it's my own morality. And I'm following my own morality. As long as I'm a good person, and I do good things, I should be good to go, right? I love J.P. Moreland, was one of my professors at Talbot, and he, I had to read all of his books. And, and one of them was uh, Loving God with All Your Mind. And in that book, because Jesus does say that, love God with all your mind, your heart, and your soul. Why does he say love God with all your mind? Because your mind matters. He goes back into Isaiah chapter 1 where God says to Isaiah, come, let's reason together. Let's, let's have a conversation. Let's really think this thing through. So he was at a, he was at a dinner party, and, he, and he had a very, very brilliant doctor was ta- talking and basically kind of insulting him about his faith and, and the fact that he would believe all this stuff. And, and, and he asked him, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been wrong? Absolutely, I've been wrong. So, so you're telling me that you're willing to bet your entire life and the future and your eternal, your eternal destiny on your own thinking, but you've been wrong before. How, do you, how can you be certain that you're not wrong again? When it comes down to all religions are the same, begin to look at the worldview. Begin to look at 
the complexity of, of how that religion has been put together. And when you do that, I taught this class at Biola. It was really the hardest class I ever taught. And I probably just made it too complicated. And then they said, all right, you're done teaching at Biola. And that was the end of that. But the other classes were really good, and I got great results. But this one in particular, I didn't get as good of results. It was called the Foundation of Christian Thought. And I turned it into a faith and science class, compared world religions, and I basically started at the very beginning, which was probably not where I should have started. Literally the beginning of time uh, of, the, of the early philosophers of asking the question, how do we know even anything at all? And how do we have a language that... Is able, so you hear me and you hear my words, you're interpreting them. How do we even get to that point and then build from that into thought and then how did God communicate to us and what thought is truthful and what thought is not truthful. But anyway, in the process of all that, I really felt like I was able to um, articulate the differences between all religions and how they answer the worldview questions. And in doing so, one has to come away believing that the Christian worldview has the best answer to the reality in which we live. The pain and suffering, the reality of the human condition, the physicality of our lives, the eternal nature of our lives, that we have something with us, desire something more, all these kinds of things. These are just a just a couple examples. But my idea here is be ready. That's all I'm trying to I'm trying I'm trying to just plant some seeds. Let me just give you a couple uh, examples, and then we're going to be done. Um, I, was in, I was in Europe um, studying um, in Vienna, Austria, when I was in college. And uh, my professor, one of my professors is brilliant. His name is Dr. Latour. And Dr. Latour taught, Eastern, um, he taught uh, European history. And he really loved the Habsburgs. And so he spent a lot of time talking about the Habsburg monarchy in, in Vienna. But he didn't like them, but he wanted to talk a lot about them. He, he, he had harsh words, critis, very, very critical of the Habsburgs. But anyway, we, it was a brilliant, brilliant professor. And he literally would lecture for 45 minutes without notes. And we would just literally write what he said down. It was some of the most incredible historical lessons I've ever heard. And so we were at this little, we were at a castle in Vienna having a dinner gathering with all the students. And he heard that my brother and I were leading a little small investigative Bible study. And we invited the, the students that were part of this program to come, come to the pub and we're going to hang out and, and uh, uh, we're going to talk about faith and Christianity and religion and whatever question you have about God. And it was really cool. We had some amazing dialogues and great conversation. And he heard about that, and he goes, you actually believe in Christianity? I mean, he just looked at me like that. This brilliant man. This is a guy that, <clears throat> well, well-trained. He actually, um, his family lived in Vienna. He actually, they, evacu they evacuated after the occupation, made it to the United States, joined the Army. And he was part of the first U.S. Army infantry that invaded um, Poland. And he was in Auschwitz the day it was um, the day that the United States Army came in and reoccupied it from the Germans. And so when we were there, he was telling us the story. So this is a guy with deep history and has, has seen a lot of pain, seen a lot of hardship, and brilliant guy. And and I really didn't know how to answer the question: Why on the earth would you believe that? And I remember saying this: I, I don't know why I said it, but this I, just like it just came out. Because it's undeniably true. It's as true as the rain 
of the Habsburgs in Austria. You believe in the history of the Habsburg monarchy as historical fact. Well, that is true of Jesus. And the question is, what are you going to do about it? I remember that. It was like, wow. I can't believe I said that. And I think it was the, I think he went back to his cigarette and his cocktail, and that was the end of that. I don't know what ever happened. I had a, and sometimes you know somebody's not going to ask the question, but you, can, you have an opportunity to plant a seed. I had recently had a buddy of mine's going through a very, very difficult time, probably a failed marriage. And he came over, just wanted to talk. And I said, great, come on over. And he told me his whole life story. And he really didn't, wasn't looking for advice. And he wasn't looking to convert. He was just simply asking, will you listen to me? And halfway through it, he goes, you're a really good listener. I know. That's all I've been doing is listening. <laughs> so I went through this whole thing. He went through this whole thing. And at the end of it, I decided, you know what? I'm going to plant a seed. And this is what I did. He didn't ask me my opinion. But here's what I did. I said, you know, you are in the worst thing that could ever happen to you. You're in the worst situation you could possibly be. But you've also, you're in the best place you could ever be. And he looked, his eyes were wide open, and he looked at me like, you got to be the stupidest person. That's the stupidest advice I have ever heard. What are you how can you possibly say this is the best thing that could possibly happen? I don't know why I said it. I said it. But as I think back on it, I hope he thinks about it because it's really true. If you continue to do the same thing that you do and you did, you're going to get the same results. So something's got to change. And the only way to change is for everything to blow up and for something to be reset. And so this could potentially be the best thing that had ever happened in your life. And maybe that leads him to the truth that there's something else more that's out there. Be ready to make. Yet, finally, here we go. Finally, do it with a sense of reverence. Do it with a sense of gentleness. Come on up, worship team. Let's, um, let's close out our time together and um, worship the Lord. And as we do, I just want you, I, I want you to see the flow of this argument from the holiness of our lives to being ready to make a defense and be relationally honoring to people. See, you can win the argument and lose the relationship. And what good is that? But be ready because there will come a time and a place if we live our lives in such a way that they might see the hope that lies within us. So, Father, I pray for those opportunities. I pray for those relational connections that uh, we have with people that are not religious, that are not churchgoers, but potentially seekers. And we pray, Father, that um, there would be a time and a place and that you would give us potentially an insight, a thought, an interesting question to ask and we would sit and respectfully listen and yet we would be confident and not afraid in any scenario in any subject whether it's evolution or whether it's about DNA or whether it's about faith and science or the baselessness of faith and the factual evidence of science and yet we know that all faith all faith 
has a factual basis that we'd be able to clarify and not be defensive but we would father be the kind of people that have built strong relations with others and we would be a, 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 a beacon of light in Jesus name amen As we finish passing communion around, will you stand with me? As we finish in worship, you can take it whenever you're ready. You were the word at the beginning. Why with God the Lord most
time you have no rival you have no rival you have no equal now and forever God you reign yours is the kingdom yours is the glory yours is the name heavens and earth that it's not just a storybook that we get to enjoy liturgy but that we get to stand on the truth of a God who came who took on flesh so that we could know you so that we could walk with you Jesus so may that be the fire that lights our heart as we go about into the world in our spheres Lord may we never forget the price that you paid you have no rival, you have no equal. For you were raised to life again. So let that be the power that sparks life in our bones. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of us. So may we stand on that truth and be confident in that in all of life's circumstances. So we love you, Jesus. We honor you. We worship you. Thank you for this time. Jesus name. Amen. Amen. It's good to be back with you guys. I was at the retreat last weekend and I missed you all, but bless you. We'll worship with you next week again. <laughs>